Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Who, by unending discipline of the senses, embraces unity, cannot be disintegrated. By concentrating his vitality and inducing tenderness, he can become like a little child. By purifying, by cleansing the profound intuition, he can be free from faults. Now that's from Lao Tzu. <clears throat> and that's the version we're most familiar with because of our background. There is another version which goes, when the intelligent soul and the instinctual soul are held together in one embrace, they can be kept from separating. <clears throat> when one gives undivided attention to the vital breath and brings it to the utmost degree of flexibility, he can become like a tender babe. When he has cleansed away the most mysterious sights of his imagination, he can become without flaw. Yes, indeed. Now, by and large, people all over this world, most people, in whatever tradition they're in, <clears throat> they believe there is one truth, hmm? one truth, one God. They believe that this world is one. It is one universe. After all, uni means one, uni world, universe, uni one world, one verse. Yep. Now, we may not actually know this for a fact, hmm? but we think about it, and we are told this is so, and so we believe this. It is one world, one God, and one truth. Hmm? One world, one people under God. Hmm? Why then, in believing in one truth, do we divide? Hmm? We divide almost everything, including the truth. Hmm? There is one truth, we say, but then we quickly add, there's one truth for God and one truth for me and one truth for you. Hmm? Or for you and me, there's one truth. Or we could say there's one truth for heaven and one truth for earth. We divide it. We split it. We're dualists. We divide body and soul. Here's my body, and it's quite visible, but my soul you can't see. So I think I have, but I think I have a soul. Hmm? I think I have a soul. 
And so we divide ourselves. There's matter and spirit. This body is matter and the soul is the spirit. And then uh, if we are split, if we are divided, you know, then it must follow as the night, the day. So is everything else. Hmm? And as Sozan said, you know, he's the <clears throat> third patriarch. He said a tenth of an inch difference and heaven and earth are set apart. Yeah, that he wrote that poem, you know, called Shinjin no Mai, believing the believing mind or the believing heart. Yeah. Anyway, we live in this state. And we live in an illusory state. We have a great deal of imagination. And we have this phenomena within ourselves. And we say we believe in oneness on one hand, and maybe even based on some inside experience, we believe in oneness. Huh? But at the same time, we act as if we believe in two. We think in two. We operate as if it were all a big duality. Now we know that some of the religions, the, the traditional religions, are based on duality. Some are based on oneness, and some are based on both. That's the, uh, uh, what do we call them? Pseudo-dualistic, uh, mm -hmm. qualified dualism. You qualify the dualism to get to the one. But we talk about, you know, the body and soul. The body and soul. Now, there you sit, body and soul. Hmm? Are they one? Are they? Hmm? Hmm. Why do you believe this? Body and soul is one. Yeah? Matter and consciousness. Matter and consciousness. Are they two? Hmm? Are they two? Matter and consciousness. Are they two? Body and soul, are they one? You think about it. <laughs> now we discriminate. <clears throat> Incredible how we discriminate. And Sozan again says, if you wish to see it before your own eyes, have no fixed thoughts, either for or against. For the perfect way knows no difficulties, except that it refuses to make preferences. Hmm? We discriminate. And so the world that we think we live in is a two-ness. Hmm? And then we begin to look at this thing and, you know, finding it in ourselves, and we begin to wonder, you know, how does this discrimination between the body and the soul take place? Hmm? You discriminate one against the other. 
They're seemingly opposites, so they're two. Hmm? Maybe if we knew more about how this all came about, this two-ness, then maybe we would also understand their union or their coming together again. Hmm? And after all, I, this is what we want, I think. I hope. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're here. <laughs> and somewhere, somehow, in amongst all of these wants that we have, and we have them aplenty, comes this knowing want. Now, when a baby is born, and I talk about it often and say this, it's not conscious of any differentiation between the body and the soul. <clears throat> Neither is he aware of uh, the difference between his body and the body of his mother. To him, it's all the same. Nor does he differentiate between his body and the world. To him, it's all one. It's all together. There's this togetherness. The world is his. He is the world. He's connected with it. It's all together. Everything is his. <clears throat> well, and in the midst of all of this, he gets hungry. Hmm? And he's fed. And this goes along for several months. And then comes a day, he's hungry, and he cries, and he is not fed. He's made to wait. He is being taught self-control. And it's necessary. Others teach us about control. And through this control, we learn self-control. It is not necessary, I don't care what some people say, it is not necessary that in this one lifespan we always fulfill everything that we want. It isn't necessary that we do that, no. No life is long enough, <laughs> certainly not mine. <laughs> You know, in, in Tantra Yoga, along with Vipan, you know, he said, you want something, brown it on both sides. Get into it to such an extent that you just get sick of it. And it's through. You'll no longer have that desire. Fine. God Almighty. <laughs> See, I can't live long enough for that. Yeah. But anyway, little by little, <clears throat> the little child is controlled. You know, and there comes along this potty training. See, this is self-control. He's got to learn how to control himself. See? So he learns self-restraint. And at the same time now, he be, you know, he's beginning to get this control, so he feels a little separated from the body. Little child begins to have some control. Body hungry. Mother not around. Hmm. No food. Body sleepy. B 
but there's too much yet to play. You know, he's too involved in the playing. So, uh, no sleep. Don't go to sleep yet. Not yet. He needs to go to the potty. And for some reason or another, it's not convenient. So he does the best he can. <laughs> Now, except maybe a little Eric, he don't care. <laughs> this kind of thing, it's necessary for us to learn, and it comes about because of the way we live. We conform, you know, always to the way we live. Uh, it's uh, necessary that we learn this kind of uh, control, self-control, but then it is also not reality, is it? It's just necessary for the way we live. And because we have found out by now, I think, that it's not at all true that everything in life that is useful is the truth. Sometimes there isn't what we could call an untruth or a preference or a like opposed to a dislike that turns out to be, for the moment, most useful. Hmm? Sometimes. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we find ourselves in a position where it's necessary to develop some restraint and we have to learn some forbearance. And we have to learn some patience, not only with ourselves, but with others. And learning patience with yourself is very important. We have to learn to let be. We have to develop some kind of a let's wait and see what happens attitude. We don't have to push it through the door now. Hmm? <clears throat> Restraint and patience and forbearance. Hmm. Necessary. Oh, it's, you know, it's our learning self-control as a little child. All these grow out of that. And <clears throat> they are factors in this separation. <clears throat> Religions go to such ends, so to in this forbearance and, and patience and uh, restraint, you know, that uh, both in the East and the West, you know, that they make it very harsh. It's a harsh living, it's a hard life, see. And in some cases, it's almost a cruelty. Not almost, it is in some instances. You know. uh, and now, the, watching these films that we have of Shogun Dojo, you know, the rough, harsh way that they live, you know, or the tales that we hear of monasteries in Europe and in the United States, in the Aramidic societies. See, they're all well, like at Shogenji. They get up at 3.30 in the summertime and 4 o'clock in the wintertime. You know, it's pretty early, and they rush out there so they can wash their face and brush their teeth, you know, and it's cold. It, I don't think it ever gets warm at Shogenji, huh? 
And there are all these monks now together in this cold, cold morning. And then comes the chanting, and then comes this frugal breakfast with a little bit of gruel with a little pickle in it, you know. And then they meditate, and then they work, and they work, and they meditate, and they work, and they work. And then they have a little lunch, and they have a short free period, and then they work, 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 short period of free time before dinner, and then eat this frugal dinner, but added to it a little bit of soup maybe, or some whatever. And then meditation or contemplation, as the case may be, or this lying prostrate on the floor of the cell, and they're praying constantly, and in, like in the um, hesychast, you know, the, uh, the Jesus prayer, the constant chanting of this usus, usus, you know, until you repeat it long enough with your mouth that it goes in and it settles in the heart, and then the heart repeats it. The heart just holds it and repeats it. Hmm. Yeah, I look at the way they live, and I look at the results, and I wish I were there also. Yeah. And the rigorous training of the Jesuits, I mean, this is something else again, you know. And uh, the formidable training of the Carmelites. The Carmelite tradition that begins with a mountain. It's Mount Carmel in Palestine. And this was the home of Elijah. And to this place, in about the year 1125, came a group of people to live on that humongous rock. And they called themselves after the mountain instead of some person. In Jesuits, they're called the Society of Jesus. And the Franciscans are the, uh, the brothers of uh, St. Francis. And the Benedictines are the, the brothers of uh, uh, St. Benedict. You know, but not these people. They're mountain, mountain, Mount Carmel. And they consider themselves mountain climbers and desert rats. The desert, the purgatory, the mountain, paradise. From purgatory to paradise, desert rats and mountain climbers. And they follow this, this ancient dictum, I will espouse you, lead you into the desert, and there I will speak to your heart. And now to enter this great silence, is to enter the desert. The desert is very silent, huh? And the, the sole purpose of their lives, once they become a Carmelite, are prayer and contemplation, and their, what they call their rule. They have a rule or a law by which they live, and it is now used, the same rule or law is used by all the monasteries in Europe and the United States. And which is, we are called upon to meditate day and night upon the law of the Lord. Now, these laws that they are called upon <clears throat> to observe, to meditate on, 
uh, this rule. They are not the Ten Commandments. They are considered the law that is written in the universe. The law that is written in your heart, or the natural law, we could call it, or the cosmic law. In the East, they call it the Dharma, the law, the natural law. Hmm? Now, for these people to enter into the silence is to enter the desert. And they also consider that a, a pervading feeling or aspect that one has in the desert is death. You wander in the desert, you know, there's no lush green places much, you know. It's, it's dry and it's dead and there's bones around of animals and uh, rocks and dead leaves. Entering the desert is death, represents a death. <clears throat> now, uh, the Carmelites, when they take their vows, <clears throat> so they take the vow of poverty, which all monks do and all nuns, poverty. And like death, this poverty that they are looking for strips them of all material possessions. And then they have the vow of celibacy, which is the anticipation of the fact that in heaven, in heaven, huh, we will not marry. In heaven, there is the marriage to the Christos, only, this embrace, huh? And then we have obedience. And obedience is kind of like a death also because it substitutes God's will for our own self-will, obedience. Something that we don't know too much about, obedience. At one time, every Carmelite monastery had a human skull placed in the center of the, of the main dining table because this was, you know, this confrontation with death. To always remember that this is what you're really confronting is death, see? And to die while living, of course, is the purpose of going to live in a monastery. You die now so that you will never die again. You die in life so that you will never die again. So. Now, on this mountain, Carmel, Elijah, you know, he stands there, and it's described in the book of Kings, and he says, the Lord God lives before whom I stand. See? which is considered by some to be the shortest and most effective autobiography ever written. <laughs> the Lord God lives before whom I stand. Yeah, and it's a kind of a charter for all the contemplatives ever since. Because Elijah's statement points dramatically to the reality of God. Hmm? The fact of Elijah's existence and his identity with this thing that the Lord God lives. 
And it is he then that tells the contemplatives or the monks, you know, that they must be God-conscious and not self-conscious. And so Elijah is regarded as the, um, uh, he is an august event. You know, he is a terrible event. He is the eye of the storm. He is the place where lightning strikes. He is a symbol of fire. And he's the spiritual father of the Carmelites. You know, you know, um, last week, you know, I told a little story about the fire. Hmm? You know, Abba Lot and Abba Joseph, Father Lot and Father Joseph, huh, are talking together. And Father Abba says, uh, I do all this meditation and uh, contemplation excuse me, contemplation, and um, fasting, celibacy, and poverty, you know, and uh, I'm seeking peace. And through these then, I will have peace. And uh, the Father Joseph stands up and he points his fingers at the sky, you know, there's flames coming out of them. And he says, but your whole body could be fire, if you want, if you want. Mm. Elijah. Hmm? <clears throat> so it was St. John of the cross, St. John, who makes the ascent up Mount Carmel, and he calls this ascent the dark night of the soul. <clears throat> and his poetry, you know, how he wrote about it, he describes this, this whole ascent in the terms of climbing this mountain. The ascent which takes us straight up the mountain and uh, not choosing any side paths or side issues you know, which would might make it a little easier. But you see, these Carmelites are mountain climbers, straight up the mountain. And this Saint Teresa of Avila, you know, and, and it was Saint John of the Cross as her disciple, this Mother Teresa, Saint Teresa. And they lived in Spain in about the 16th century, in Avila in Spain. Neither of them ever saw Mount Carmel, actually. But they were Carmelites in Spain. And she was, I guess, horribly strict with the nuns and with the, with the, with the priests. I mean, mm. And she was known as the mother, and St. John is known as the father of the Carmelites. And for all of her strictness, she was at the same time evidently a very effervescent, buoyant kind of a person. Hmm? One of her greatest prayers was, Oh God, deliver me from the sour-faced saints. Hmm? 
And there's a story about her. Uh, she is going, she's riding her little cart, little donkey and cart, along these back roads in Spain, and they were having this torrential downpour. So, you know, it finally, in the mud, the cart breaks down, and everything, all her supplies, everything, it's all in the mud, and it's just one big, terrible mess. And she begins to pray. She asks for help from Jesus, and supposedly Christ responds, and he says, Teresa, this is the way I treat my friends. And Teresa comes right back with, no wonder you have so few. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Anyway, that's my tangent for the day. Uh, monastery living, be it Eastern or be it Western, the idea of it is obedience. Hmm? Can you live through all the harshness and be obedient? Can you remain obedient to that hunger, or whatever you want to call it, in you, for which you came to the monastery in the first place? Can you remain obedient to it? Can you remain obedient so that the self-consciousness can become God-consciousness? How obedient to that purpose can you be every day in your life? Hmm? You might think about it now and then. <clears throat> now, restraint and forbearance, says Lao Tzu. The needs rising in an individual become quite differentiated from the one who has learned to control, who is supposedly in control. These needs arise separately, and the one who is in control can sort of watch this. Something over here is coming up. Hmm. So we have the intellect and we have the desire. We finally boil them down to that. And they're quite separate and quite distinct from each other. And this splits everything in two splits everything in twain, as they used to say, which I kind of like. Everything is split in twain. This is the conflict in which we live. What we desire and how the intellect copes with that desire. So that we not only have to go out there and earn our living and we have all that outer struggle, but we have also an inner struggle. And we have this intellect and desire, and each half of us then, the intellect and the desire, asserting its own requirements. I want this. Body says, I want this. Intellect says, no, 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 you can't have that. Let's restrain ourselves. Let's have patience, huh? See. And in today's philosophy, and I'm quite sure it's Wittgenstein who said this, uh, the thought that language is less adaptive than experience, and our modern verbal intellectuality may therefore be just a heightened form of emotionalism. So much for your thinking. 
Now, psychologists sometimes go so far as to say, and this, I think, is patterned after Freud, and this is what many psychologists are trying to do, is put us back together again. They say that we regard the part of our body below the navel as a lesser, lesser part of ourselves. And not because of its position as being in a lower position, but we think of it as being inferior. I mean, after all, this is the area in which we defecate. And here we have this shame. Because at one time, we had diapers, <coughs> and we didn't have the restraint. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff that goes in there. So lower part, and we, we think of it as inferior. <clears throat> I could go on a little dumb about that, but we won't. <laughs> Mentally, we establish an identity with our heads. That's the upper part. And somehow or another, <clears throat> we try to sever the connections with the lower half. You know, and now what we're doing, we're trying to do, is intellectually sever connections with the instincts. And now, Lao Tzu goes on to say, if the intellectual soul, that is the rational soul, and the instinctual soul are held together in one embrace, they can be saved from separation. Watch a little child sometimes when it eats. He has such pleasure in eating and he eats totally. Hmm? He's totally eating. When he dances, he dances all the way through, you know? When he runs, he runs with his soul. He doesn't separate it. Everything is with him. He's still integrated. And somehow or another, coming where we are now, this eludes us, this kind of togetherness. You know, we run and we think, gee whiz, can I keep this up? All kinds of things we're, keep, we're thinking already, huh? We no longer have that kind of a completeness, even of love, that a child has. And it really should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, after all, we've got a lot of experiences that qualify us for togetherness. Hmm? Yeah. Instead, you know, something in us is disrupted. And we live with a distance now between us and existence. And no matter where you go, you can go from here to New York, you can go from here to Japan, you can go from here to Russia, and this distance remains. This kind of a crossing that we cannot seem to make. There's an abyss there we've got to get over. Yeah. We should, you know, we should. Jesus said, you know, those who become like children enter the kingdom of God. This uh, <clears throat> togetherness of a child, this kind of a innocence that a child has, um, is called ignorance. Now, those who are obedient, you know, God consciousness replacing self-consciousness, you know, regain this togetherness, this oneness. 
But this is not now born out of ignorance, it's born out of wisdom. Hmm. The unity that a child has is not his attainment. It's just, that's the way it is when he's born. And his situations and his surroundings bring about this separation and this conflict. And so here we sit. It is not necessary for a man to die in this state of duality and conflict. He can know the state of unity and what he has already now experienced adds a great deal of dignity. Mm. Yeah. I, that's true. Now what to do to embrace this state of non-duality? What to do? What are you going to do? <clears throat> Lao Tzu taught that whatever you do, whatever we do, be it sitting mm, or standing or eating or sleeping or walking, we should be absolutely immersed in the act. Are you immersed? You're sitting. Hmm? If you're walking, you become the walking itself. You know, first, you know, when we come into something like this, we struggle to become aware of a witness. And then we struggle to be that witness. Then comes a time when there is no witness. So there is no walking in the, the walker in the walking. Hmm? No witness. No walker in the walking. Eat becomes the act of eating. And when you look, you become the looking. You become the looking. Whatever you do, do it with such wholehearted totality that you're completely one with the act. Just the act. No doer. First, you know, we've got this ego eye that's telling us this and that and the other. And we accept at the beginning that this ego is the witness. We think, oh yeah, now I know the witness. That's the ego. But, but we don't know it's the ego. We just accept we know the witness. Then comes another witness that we call the self. And then there is no self. What happened to the witness? Now, the Greeks spoke of three realms, the instinctual, the rational, and the spiritual. Hmm? Let me get this from the Gnostics. Instincts, we have our instinctual soul. We, we have this in common with the animals. Animals rely on their senses. This is instinct, huh? We rely on the senses, but we have forgotten this. We're so busy thinking. Hmm? We should be busy bridging this gap between the instincts and the intellect, you know, which is not climbing higher. It's going down, isn't it? This gap between the body and soul. Mm -hmm. 
then they can be, as they say, bound in one embrace. That's unity. And you know, the, the Christian mystics, and St. John it, particularly, he speaks of the bridegroom embracing the bride, the rational soul and the instinctual soul becoming united. And there is then a unity, or as they speak of it, as a marriage, because the bridegroom and the bride are there. The rational soul or the intellectual intelligence is considered the male element. That's the mind. It's male. It's masculine. And the nature of the body is considered a female element. This is feminine. And when they are bound in a single embrace, they have then, there is a state then that comes about of complete absorption. And this is called in the East Samadhi. So the people are running around talking about, I'm sitting in samadhi, I'm sitting in samadhi, you know, as they do. It's a nice word. But this complete absorption, you know, has eluded them. And you can tell it just by the way they say samadhi. Yeah. So we observe in our effort to understand ourselves and how we're going to go about this thing of understanding ourselves more. You know, we observe a small child breathing when he sleeps. When he's lying there, his abdomen goes up and down, up and down. And in the case of the average adult, <clears throat> the chest goes up and down. Now, when the instinctual, this is what some people believe, when the instinctual soul and the rational soul begin to separate, you know, there's a distance between them now. See, the seat of the breath moves from the navel area to the chest. And the higher it goes, the greater the distance between these two, the instincts and the rational. So you watch once in a while where you're breathing. When we sleep, it reverts right back to the abdomen. When you're really relaxed and not in the mind, then it goes right back here again. And see, in the unconscious state, the distance is overcome. Now, the Japanese have a word for the seat of the breath, and that's called a tendon. And the Greeks also had a word for it. They called it the diaphragm. Uh, the Japanese, when they, when, with this tendon, when there's a flame lights in it, it becomes a hara. And from that, you know, they get the word harakiri. <clears throat> we think of breathing, hmm? and we breathe with the lungs. We do. Hmm? But where is the seat of that breath? Where's the seat of it? In our Western world here, where we have all this bodybuilding stuff, business, you know, the chest should be very large and well-developed. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And our stomachs should be quite flat. Hmm? You know, so that it's so flat that it almost hits the backbone. Right? 
I couldn't do that once upon a time. So that the breath inflates the chest and is not allowed to go any further. It's just all up here. <clears throat> See? And then we turn around and we look at Chinese paintings and Japanese paintings and Korean paintings and Siamese paintings and so on. They're art. And we look at people like Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu and Ho Tai and so on and so on. Most any of the old patriarchs, all of them, big stomachs. Oh, big stomachs. You know, they're proud of them. They breathe, you know, and they say, got the moon in my stomach. Developed by breathing. Very spiritual. Big stomach. Yeah. I know there was, somebody came here once and he had a big stomach. No, this is somebody else. But, you know, and I was telling Henry about him one day. You know, this man, this person, and his, his stomach, you know. And Henry got really interested. You know, does he breathe from his stomach? No, I don't think so, Henry. He just got a big stomach. Does that apply to women, too? I'm afraid so. Of course, we're more apt to have the big stomach anyway. It's more natural with us. It's quiet. That's <laughs> true. And I think that most of you is still with this breathing thing. And most of you know by now that the outgoing breath is more important than the inner breathing. Inner breathing happens all by itself. So you pay attention to breathing out. Hmm? And usually when we observe ourselves breathing, the breath comes in from out there. Hmm? Yeah, it comes in, huh? <clears throat> and we breathe out, and the breath has come from somewhere in here, out. Huh? So it's in and out, in and out, in and out. And, uh, you know, this, this breath, there is contained in it what, what is called the vital breath or the prana. And I know it, someone came once upon a time and wanted uh, an interview. We did it out here. And he had been sitting for 10 years under a Roshi. So knowing that he had spent all that 10 years focusing on the breath, I asked him about it. What about the breath? What about it? I ask you every once in a while, you know, what about it? It's terribly important, you know. And he just said, well, it comes and it goes. You don't know anything else about it? It comes and it goes. Well, swell. There is a seat of breathing in us. Hmm? We can become so one with this seat, you know, that when that we don't leave. We're just there with the breath that doesn't leave, even though it's going in and out. It doesn't leave. Its seat is there. It's seated. And then there is another case uh, when I breathe out, I go out. And when I breathe in, I come in. Hmm? I go out. Not the breath. I go out. I come in. With breath, I enter this body. With breath, I enter the universe. Because being in the seat, you know, 
the center of me is the center of the universe. And I can merge with this vast body of universe. So it's merging here and merging here. Yeah. Also, with this breath, oh, one should uh, cleanse the web of imagination and illusion. We live kind of like a spider. And I gave a talk about that, oh, let's see, 25 years ago. Spider. We live in a web. We create a web. Sounds like what? She said, do I remember your talk 25 years ago? No, I gave it in Colorado. Oh, Your mother was there. Uh, I think. Yeah, that's right. And this other guy, the psychologist, that came down to hear what I was going to do. Anyway, we weave a web. And we live sort of like a spider right at the center of this, all this web that we have woven, this web of illusion. This, this illusory state that we aid and abet, and aid and abet, and aid and abet. And for a long while, one can say, no blame. Uh, we just have not known what we were about. But now we know, don't we, what we are about. So it, it behooves us to do something about it. In the name of education, in the name of philosophy, in the name of religion, in our everyday life, in all facets of it, we weave webs. We have created countless gods. We have created countless heavens and countless hells, maybe a few more hells and heavens. We have manufactured with our imagination. And all of this we do without even knowing what imagination is. Hmm? What is it? What is it, huh? In you there is something that hopes, and it builds on hopes, and it builds on dreams, and it builds and it builds. Hmm? It's a faculty that we have. From whence cometh it? Hmm? And what is it, really? Yeah. And in all of our illusions and disillusions, what have we known? What do we really know? Hmm? What have we realized? Hmm. And so we allow this imagination to run wild. And this web that we have made, we live in it, you know. We say we live in it. We are alive. We live surrounded by all this. Use that breath to disperse it so you can see reality. We need to retrace our steps. We really need to return to this very neutral center. And doing so, we keep an eye on this breath. 
because a change in the breath is a change in you. Hmm? Breath changes first. As breath deepens, superficialities drop off. Through uh, the breath at your very center, you merge with the whole world. For, you know, that's a non-duality. When you are at your center, you also reach the center, as I said, of the universe. And this is then the supreme embrace whereby you come become what is called a Zen man. So we breathe deeper and deeper and deeper and curtains lift and we have insights and something is revealed to us. They have always said, you know, as above, so below. There is this correlation. The Greeks said it. And the gurus of India have said what is in the body is in the universe. Man is a macrocosm of the microcosm, or other way around. Plotinus said, man is a measure of the universe. Hmm? Man is a measure of all things. He is a miniature universe. So we're very busy, though, with this web making, making walls and barriers within ourselves. And we imprison ourselves. Nobody else has made the prison but you. And you're sure sitting in a prison. Yeah. How are we going to meet ourself, this self, ourselves, if we are so afraid to that we have to have this prison to protect us? You know? What's that poem? Prison walls do not a, no, walls and bars do not a prison make, something like that. How are you going to have the courage to meet God if you won't meet yourself? Hmm. So we accept ourselves, the totality of ourselves. What is within is of God. What is without is of God. The body's crystallized light. Hmm? And God is light that is still invisible. Maybe. Hmm? There are two ends of the same. Visible God and invisible God. People through the ages have carved images of God or their idea of God out of stone. And the message is that some of them wanted to relay or to convey was as long as you cannot see God in a piece of stone, how can you see God in a living body? So we, we have these things that we, we, we say, uh, God must be so-and-so. And we're very busy making the rules. And somebody like that who is so busy making rules, if they would meet a living God, he would immediately have a hundred doubts about that person, that individual. He eats. I don't think they eat anybody who is a living God. I don't think so. You feel hungry? How can you feel hungry? The living God isn't supposed to feel hunger. You shiver in the cold? 
Oh, no, you're not supposed to do that. You need a fan in the summer? You sleep? How can this be? It goes against all my imaginations. Hmm? Yeah. You see God in a rock? See God in the sun? They didn't know anything, those people. Those people didn't know anything. Maybe they knew more than this guy. There, because they had, you know, this all-embracing acceptance of life. <coughs> so we go about our business, breathing, and having this togetherness, so that we are the act. And so we finally have this innocent eye that sees the Lord <laughs> in everything. And then so and through this, the whole world becomes divine. <coughs> you know, they've always depicted that the, that the eye is here. It's a, you know, for centuries in all traditions, here it is. Are you sure that's right? I think my little thing's going to come off. I don't want it to come off until I go home. Maybe it's here. Maybe that's where the all-seeing eye is. Maybe it's in your stomach. Maybe it's in the horror. Maybe it's not up here at all. We only want it up here because that's where we think we are. Maybe it's where the seat of the breath is. Think about that one. Well, you know. Anyway, it still is so that if thine eye be single, thine whole house shall be filled with light. And now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I do thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.